Rebel Madman Radio here at Republic Broadcasting Network. And uh, the one thing I will tell you is that bad moon that you see out there is the one I refer to as the Yankee moon because it sure ain't southern. <laughs> because it wouldn't be that way if it was <laughs> a southern moon. But uh, we are very fortunate today in the fact that uh, Miss uh, Karen Stokes, uh, an excellent author, and folks, uh, if you have, uh, you know, if you if reading a book is a little bit of a task for you these days, then please go to the Abbeville Institute and read. Just type into the search engine Karen Stokes and read her works, because if you know, I've I've been told many times that the now the attention span of an uh, of an American citizen is about like that of an Irish setter. So uh, if you can't read a whole book, at least read an article. Uh, Blackbird, uh, we were talking to you there, and I think you dashed off for some reason. Are you still uh, with you caught me. I'm sorry. The I thought the break was longer. My apologies. <laughs> no problem. No problem, buddy. Uh, but uh, your thoughts uh, on uh, what is the difference as we look at this today, Blackbird 9? You and I both know we've been in the bowels of this beast, and we know that the lie is their number one weapon. And they use it continually on the people. But to have someone like Ms. Stokes, who does the work that she does, and it has to be a labor of love, because I'm sure she hasn't made... Uh, $300 million like uh, uh, the people who uh, support Lincoln have done. Uh, So so, uh, your thoughts, uh, please, uh, Frederick. Oh, just one. Thank you for this labor of love, this body of work. And that, you know, like the rebel madman going to the source documents and putting that out. And it's, I know what it's like to go through those old letters and transcribe them so they can be published. That's very time consuming, you know, meticulous work. Uh, and just, yeah, this is so important. It's how, uh, do you promote your work? I mean, do you go to uh, festivals with the you know ten, or just do you advertise in magazines, or you know how do you try to get your work out there? Well, when I first started, uh, I would have book signings set up by the publisher um, uh, here and there, but mainly. Uh, who has been uh, uh, mainly get invited to camps of the Sons of Confederate Veterans and the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, and I promote my books and sell them there. I have been, I have spoken to other groups and in other venues and done book signings, like at a bookstore and things like that. And I do try to advertise, um, in uh, Confederate Veteran Magazine and also the UDC, and I've also written a lot of articles for both of those, for especially Confederate Veteran. Um, I wrote uh, at least a half a dozen for them, and uh, so you'll you'll see some of my advertising in there. But uh, I would I would when I first started, I would get um, invited to say a Civil War roundtable. And uh, it would be um, populated by mostly by Northerners. <laughs> oh, great! And uh, they didn't seem to like what to hear what I had to say about. Oh, imagine that! They asked me if I thought he was a war criminal, and I said, "Yeah." <laughs> by definition, 
he was definitely poster boy war criminal. And they didn't, they weren't too happy with that. So I didn't ever get invited back there, you know. I have the same problem with that. <laughs> they don't let me speak in Watauga County anymore. Uh, so, but anyway, so I understand that. And uh, I guess, you know, what Mr. Gaddy was saying was, you know, the power of the lie. And to me, the most heinous lie, like I was saying during the first hour, is the lie of omission. You just ignore this huge body of facts and evidence and history because it doesn't support the narrative. And I guess that's so frustrating to me as I'm watching all of these Confederate monuments being torn down, disgraced, and the crowd cheering it. You know, the Renner Ruckus, especially, you know, what, you know, the uh, Charlottesville, of course, but, you know, UNC Chapel Hill, where they, you know, destroyed Silent Sam of all the most unassuming, you know, Civil War monuments, Silent Sam, and that they completely destroyed this public piece of artwork in such a barbarous way, a barbarian way, I guess, a uh, barbarous way, uh, you know, it's just, and just cheering and all the media of North Carolina thought that was the best thing ever that they went on chapel, you know, UNC Chapel Hill, taxpayer, you know, university, the daughters of the Confederacy, you know, group that had, you know, had that done as a memorial of all the people in North Carolina that fought in that war and that they declared it a symbol of hate, a symbol of slavery, you know, and it just had to be destroyed. And I was just wondering, what is your you know, reaction to seeing all of these uh, Confederate monuments being torn down? Well, um, it's sickening. It's really sickening and heartbreaking and infuriating. <laughs> um, and I don't know what you can do about it. Um, these people who have been taught to hate the Confederate, the Confederacy, and and the and, and the South, they it doesn't seem that you can reason with them very well. And so. Um, I don't know. That's why I, you know, that's why I write. That's why I try to get the truth out there because there are so many people like that who have been indoctrinated and they don't they don't know the whole story, and they've been told a certain version of history, and that's what that's what they've imbibed in school, and so that's what they operate off of, you know. So we've just got to get. And uh, that's why the um, Society of Independent Southern Historians uh, put out that little uh, textbook that I was talking about. And uh, uh, homeschoolers use that, I'm pretty sure. And um, so it, uh, homeschooling, is they, they tend to be more open to, to books like that. But the public schools, I don't know. I mean, when I went to school, it wasn't like that. I mean, because I'm, I'm 66 years old. <laughs> A lot has changed. But uh, I really don't know what we can do about it except just try to um, preserve what we have left and um, work towards uh, getting the truth out. Um, the Confederate Museum in Charleston is, you know, we, we're still there. And um, it, 
sometimes we wonder you know, how <laughs> long, <laughs> for how long, you know. But uh, they, Charleston is a very historic city, of course, and they have a lot of monuments there. And uh, so far, the only major thing they've done there is taken down the statue of John C. Calhoun. That was uh, like a you know a landmark in the city, and uh, it's been put away. But uh, different organizations are trying to get to get possession of the statue and um, have it put somewhere else. Uh, I'm not sure where they're going to put it because it's a huge statue. But um, so far, uh, it's most of the. Uh, Things that are vestiges of the Confederacy in in Charleston have not been harmed, although I think sometimes they'll put up a marker that, you know, uh, will try to tell you something that's not true about a certain person, you know. Imagine that. They have the the, the interpretive signs and things, you know, but uh, I really, I don't get out much and do touristy things. In the city, I guess I should walk around and see what what they've done to certain things. But uh, uh, so far, Charleston is still pretty much intact, unlike Richmond. Oh, that's for sure. And uh, Karen, if you don't mind, in Blackbird 9, uh, I would like to relate to you a story. I started, my wife and I started with our children when they were quite young. Uh, We... uh, had a goal of taking them to every Civil War battlefield in this country. That was our goal, to take our children and walk those battlefields and to let them see and understand as much as they could. And, of course, we even went all the way to Arizona, to the Battle of Picacho Peak, which most people have never heard of during the war. So we actually took our children even there and we walked up to the top of Picacho Peak. And then uh, I think he was 11, our son, and we took them on a tour which ended up in uh, Lexington, Virginia. And so we, of course, you know, uh, Washington and Lee universities on one side of the street on Lecter Boulevard and Virginia Military Institutes on the other side of the street. So we took our children there and we had toured the museum. We had let them see, you know, in the museum, we had let them see Little Sorrel. And, you know, they had looked at the uh, four cannons at VMI, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we had, uh, of course, there's this. there was this huge monument to Stonewall Jackson, who was a professor there. Mm-hmm. But at 11 years old, you know, we had been on both sides. We had looked at Washington and Lee. We'd gone into the basement and looked at Lee's crypt and all of the things involved there. And because I, we wanted our children to know the truths of history. Well, we go out and we get into the car. And our son, sitting in the back seat, 11 or 12 years old, I can't remember exactly which, and he said, well, mom, dad, right here's where I'm going to school. And so I said, which one? And he said, oh, VMI. And I said, are, you know, and my wife and I looked at each other, yeah, 12 years old, yeah, he'll change his mind somewhere. You know, we didn't say that, but uh, that was our thought. But our son never, even though he was a 
pretty good football player and had scholarship offers. He turned them all down because he was going to VMI. And he graduated from VMI in 2001. And I'll never forget, you know, some of these stories. But, uh, you know, after they pulled this debacle at VMI about tearing down the statue of Stonewall Jackson Mm -hmm. and the way that the sneaking Marxists did it was just unreal because there was usually, you know, you had a break at VMI for Thanksgiving and then you had a break for Christmas. But in between time, there were some classes. So the, you know, the wonderful commandant said, "Okay, well, you guys go home for Thanksgiving. Just don't come back until after Christmas. Elongated vacation. So they tore down Stonewall's monument when there were no cadets present. And that just shows you the actual mindset of these crazy people who want to push the lies of history down our throat. But, uh, yes, we look at these things that are happening. And the thing of it is, and I don't think many people understand, we talk about our public fool system But then we do not realize, or most people don't, that the 10th plank of the Communist Manifesto is government-controlled schools. So the government's going to teach you what they want you to know, and it doesn't – very seldom is it ever the truth. Uh, So, Blackbird, uh, any of your thoughts on that, young man? I love the Stonewall story. That is so infuriating. It reminded me of the same slime mold tactic that they used to pass the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, which was everybody was going home for Christmas holidays, but they kept back enough for a quorum. And when everybody was gone, (laughs) they voted it in. And it was kind of like, well, it's done now. What are you going to do? And so the same thing with the cadets, you know, the cadets would have, you know, hopefully stood up to it. And if, you know, the regular Congress critters, if they knew what was going to happen with the Federal Reserve, maybe they would have stayed back. Uh, but it's that you know, war by deception. That's how these people work. It's, you know, real politic. It's, you know, this is the Marxist way. And so anytime they th- you think they're giving you something, you know, you always have to watch, you know, it's, uh, what trickery is afoot with these, you know, whatever they are. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so that was just a couple of observations. So back to you. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, Karen, uh, if you were to put into a very short description, how would you tell the listeners that the truth is important? In their study of history, and it leads to the fact that people make decisions based on what they know. And if they make a decision based on a lie, it's never going to be productive. So I will leave that to your eloquence, please, ma'am. Well, you just have to know, you have to delve into primary source material for one thing um, and see if it. Uh, matches up with what a particular historian you might be reading. Um, you have to uh, read different viewpoints and uh, read older historians, too. Um, uh, when I was getting trying to get a book published a few years ago, um, 
the publisher was objecting to some of the sources that I used because they were older historians and uh, they were considered in politically incorrect. And um, my response to that was, well, just because they they were writing in a certain period, say 1900 or 1920, doesn't mean that their work is inaccurate or without merit. But they still didn't like it, of course, um, because they have a certain agenda and a certain viewpoint that they want to put across. And I uh, wound up not publishing that book <laughs> with that particular publisher. So um, you just, uh, I think I mentioned uh, an attorney named John V. Denson to you earlier when we were talking off air. And yes, ma'am. Um, he's, he, he lectures a lot, and the, I think the emphasis of his writing and his books is that you need to know history uh, in order to avoid the mistakes that were actually made and that led to war, like the war between the states and World War One, World War Two, the mistakes and, and to know the real story and not just what's in, you know, a few pages of a textbook. Um, because if you don't, you're you're operating off of the an, an inaccurate account of history, and it could lead to very severe consequences in the future. Um, and so, I recommend John V. Denson's uh, lectures that are online and his book called A Century of War. And uh, I think he's written several other books too. Um, and you just. The truth is very important, and not just in history, but you know, in, in in all of life. So, oh, very much so. And here is one of the things I think most Americans are unaware of, even those who will accept the fact that there were atrocities or terrorism committed against the people of the South. But even the people who will accept that on a small level think it only occurred later in the war. But in reality, if we go to the OR, uh, which you and I have talked about before, the official records of the War of the Rebellion, if you go to those, you will find that there were war crimes and atrocities being committed against the people of the South before the Battle of First Manassas, oh, especially yeah. in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we have some letters I've read uh, that uh, gentleman that I mentioned, the Confederate Englishman, he was telling his wife in one of his letters that some of the officers from Virginia that he worked with in Charleston had horror stories that were, they were getting from letters from home. And that was in 1863. Um, and that was that's later, of course. But it was it, Virginia got it first, of course, because that's where the first battles were. And... Um, there's a good book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's called uh, War Crimes Against Southern Civilians by Walter Bryan Sisko. Yes, ma'am, I have it. That's a great book because it's more comprehensive than mine. And he deals with all the theaters of the war, and um, and he's a brilliant man. He's a wonderful guy, and he has written other great books like a biography of General Wade Hampton and things like that. Um but that's a good good book that I would recommend. And also there's an older biography, a military biography of Sherman. It was published, I think, around 1970. It's called Merchant of Terror. 
Yes. And uh, it deals with Sherman's whole career through the war because he was he was he was com- committing atrocities in Mississippi and other places too before he came to the to Georgia and South Carolina. And Walter brought I mean Walter John B. Walters is the author of that book Merchant of Terror. I think. Somebody used that, reused that title later on, but their book is more sympathetic towards uh, Sherman. So watch out for the difference there. Um, but John B. Walters, he's he's no longer with us, but his his book is really excellent. It's out of print, and it really should be reprinted. But um, you can find used copies on the, on the internet. Uh, another thing that I participated in uh, recently is a documentary um, that's called uh, Lincoln's Quest for Empire. Have you heard of that? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I, I would recommend that to you. It's a it's behind a paywall. You have to, you, to go on the internet and download it, or you can buy the, the DVD. But um, that's a very good documentary that's just come out last year. And uh, they consulted some of my books, and I wasn't interviewed for it, but they did send me um, the documentary and asked for my commentaries on it, and I made a few suggestions and things like that. And so they sent me the DVD when it came out. Fantastic. uh, uh, They have great interviews with people on there, um, some of them from the Abbeville Institute and uh, some really outstanding historians, too. So... um, well, uh, Karen, if you don't mind, uh, there is one book uh, you know that I would like for you to speak to. I know you wrote an article about it, and that was a book called Union Terror by Dr. Jeffrey Atticott. I think I pronounced the name correctly. I, uh, I go ahead, ma'am. About that, I think somebody did a review of it on um, on the Abbeville Institute, but it wasn't me. But I do have the book. It was published by Shotwell again. Yes, ma'am. Publishing. And it's, I just read it a few months ago, and it's really good. It's written by a retired military officer and a very intelligent, well-read man who knows a lot of history also. And um, he sums up Sherman's career and how he violated all the acceptable codes of civilized warfare. And, you know, his his conclusion is that he was a war criminal and he and he writes about the the code of war at that time and how it was violated by the union army and uh, i i think it's a very good book well would you speak to uh before we get to the next break would you speak to the lieber code please well that was a code that the um that was come up with for the Union Army, I think, in '63. Not that yes, ma'am. I think it was uh, done earlier than that, and um, it was it laid out certain guidelines of how how you, and especially about being how you treated civilians. But um, they were routinely ignored or very loosely interpreted, and so you know it was. It was just a piece of paper, basically. And uh, Sherman did as he liked. I mean, he did what he wanted to. And he knew that he was violating uh, what he had been taught at West Point. And, but he did it anyway. And so uh, the Lieber Code was, you know, a reasonable document. But if you don't follow it, you know, what's the point of it? Um, 
that Sherman told his soldiers in, in Georgia, with a wink, he would say to them, forage liberally. And uh, mm-hmm. by that, they interpreted it to mean, which he knew, of course, also, you just take anything you want and there'll be no consequences. You can steal all the food, all the livestock, all the jewelry, all the silver from the people, in the, you know, the, from the civilians or whatever. And that's fine. You know, just forage liberally. You know, and he, he never put, he would never put have put in writing any order that, okay, you guys, you know, boy, go do what you want. But that's, so there's no paper trail for that, but we have records of, you know, of what, what they did and what was allowed. And it was just, it was totally overlooked. Hmm. Well, um, one of the things I would like to get to when we come back on the other side of the break here, it was I would like to get your comments on something that I've tried to teach in my classes that most people have never heard of, and that is the fact that the first three states that Lincoln invaded militarily had never seceded, and that would be uh, Maryland, uh, Missouri, and Kentucky. So why was he militarily invading other states that were still in his precious union? So, uh, like I said, we got a break coming up, but I would really like to get your thoughts on that. And when it comes to the Libra Code, let's not forget that he put all of these things together, which sounded wonderful, but then he put in the caveat that the enforcement of everything is left to the commander on the scene, which pretty well mm-hmm. <laughs> said, do what you want to, right? <laughs> there, were, there were lots of extenuating circumstances. Oh, big time. Uh, Blackbird, any thoughts before we hit that break time, buddy? Oh, just, you know, that whole thing of the spoils of war and, you know, you can do anything because they're the enemy. This is the thing, you know, you demoralize your enemy and anybody who supports your enemy. So this is all justified. And you just Sherman was, you know, one of the worst for that, you know, just full atrocity type warfare. And so you have to wonder, you know, what was the real reasons for the war? What were the real tactics for the war? And what was the real end game for the war? Was it to keep the Union together and end slavery? Or was it to break the South to completely Constructed, and I'd love after the break to hear your opinions on those infamous Reconstruction amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, of course. So, anyway, back to you. Your thoughts, ma'am? Oh, well, I'm sorry. I, something kind of faded out. The sound went away, and then it came back, so I'm sorry. Was he asking me about Reconstruction? Yes, ma'am. Well, that, that was uh, NSA getting even with Blackbird. They do it from time to time. They just black him out so his words don't come across. Oh, okay. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> being censored, huh? <laughs> well, Reconstruction oh. in South Carolina was pretty rough. Let me tell you, it was. Uh, there were there was a couple of phases of it. There was the presidential Reconstruction, which was the early on when Andrew Johnson was trying to be a little more moderate about d- dealing with the uh, seceded states. And then uh, they, of course, the radical Republicans in Congress decided that, you know, they were going to take it over. And so in 1868, 
it began a phase called Congressional Reconstruction. And um, they put in uh, the carpetbaggers in South Carolina government, the state government, and also there were scalawags, that's what they were called. Those were South Carolinians who cooperated with the, the carpetbaggers. And uh, they were all Republicans. And uh, they had a lot of, they brought a lot of uh, black men into the, into the legislature. And, uh, but it was, that government came to be characterized by a lot of corruption and stealing. It was called, uh, one, one of them called it the era of good stealing. <laughs> uh, because they were in charge of the, the uh, state purse, so to speak. And so they uh, would... Uh, well, here comes the music. We'll be back on the other side. Right. Thank you, folks. Support RBN. tuned in to the republic broadcasting network visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org february is heart month and every year extendivite has a sale this year is no different extendivite is regularly 69.95 plus shipping and handling for a two-month supply in february Extendivite is only $57.50 for a two-month supply, plus shipping and handling. Extendivite is a combination of garlic, cayenne, hawthorn, bilberry, ginkgo biloba, valerian, and milk thistle. These ingredients work synergistically to improve your overall health. So don't delay. Join the Extendivite family today. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Hi, Tom Bolton for Ease Off. I know so many of you are finding our EZ4 Carcass Drop and Lift an essential tool for your meat processing operation. But today I want to spotlight four of our new products. First, our right height hog cradles with steel or aluminum frames. Our customers love this back-saving innovation that enhances sanitation and speeds production. Next, our beef cradles with stainless steel or aluminum frames eliminate rust and corrosion. We hope you'll compare our quality and prices for this essential part of your processing line. Our cradles are especially effective when used with our power skinner. And finally, our hook tumbler will keep your hooks clean and polished. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. Are you sick of censorship? TLB Talk is the cure. TLB stands for truth, liberty, and balance. We are the newest and most unique social media platform to hit the internet. We were built out of necessity because Big Tech, Big Pharma, and Big Brother are out of control. The only thing bigger than them is when we the people are united. With that vision, TLB Talk was born. 
Our battlefield is in cyberspace. The battle we're in can be won by clicks of buttons and voting with your wallet. TLB Talk has no hidden agendas, no corporate funding, and we do not sell, trade, or give away any of your information. Our platform runs off of generous donations of members and merchandise profits. So please, check out our site. It's the best around. And be sure to stop by our store. It's loaded with items that'll have you feeling a sense of member pride and victory. Come unite with us today at TLBtalk.com and join the social media revolution. Andy and Barney Fife Now a tired stern in the brothel life Too much crap drive the world insane Everybody singing the jailhouse blues Don't believe a word of the evening news Truth stood for years down the drain Trailer parks with the building cold Cul-de-sacs on the country road High-tech bars with bad karaoke sounds Uncle Sam keeps your money spent Oh, yes. Uncle Sam keeps your money spent, folks. I promise you that. One of the hardest things I will ever do is to interrupt Merle Haggard. That is just really tough for me because he's one of my favorites of all times. And uh, but uh, you and I were talking, Karen, before uh, you know we came back on the break. And I was going to ask you: Are you uh, willing to stay over the third hour with us, ma'am? Uh, if you if you want me, <laughs> I would love to have you here. And I know my two reprobates, uh, Cal and D.W. Wood, uh, as they like to call themselves. Uh, I know they have some questions they would like to ask you as well, because they listen to the first two hours every time we have this program. And I'm <laughs> sure they have some questions for you as well. And I appreciate that. And folks will be losing Blackbird nine at the top of the hour because he does not want to suffer from Frederick fatigue, and he has to prepare for his show, which comes on after this one. And I highly would uh, recommend that you folks listen to Frederick just as he continues to bring the truth to the point. So, Frederick, are you back with us? Oh, yeah. I'd just like to clarify, I don't want the RBN audience to suffer from <laughs> Frederick's fatigue. Let's be clear about this. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I hate I'm going to have to leave you at the top of the hour, but I can't wait to hear uh, with my morning coffee in the morning, the third hour, because I always love what you guys, Cal and DW, uh, do You know, in that third hour when I have to leave and you know add all those extra points and you know, correct correct all the things I got wrong. So I always, <laughs> I always enjoy that part of my Sunday morning get up early routine, you know, sitting oh. listening to you guys. But uh, yeah, one of the things you know, we were talking about before the break was, you know, trying to get, you know, the books into, you know, education. And one of the big 
problems we have up here is with the public libraries. And under COVID King Roy Cooper and his commie carpetbagger boy wonder sidekick Josh Stein, they have basically, you know, weaponized the public library system. So, you know, when I first came back to, you know, the mountains, you know, it was like when I left, where your you know, librarians were local people. Many of them were part of the historical societies and members of the church, etc. You know, these were pillars of the community. And it was a focus on preserving Appalachian history in the public library. And then after 9-11, everything got invaded. And we now have this guy, Jacob Starks, who's just total anti-Southern. He is here to fix us, you know, under that banner of Takun Alam. And he is now the regional library system, you know, bigwig. And he's promptly purging the libraries of all that old way mm-hmm. and making way for the new multicultural Appalachian Mountains. And so it's, you know, when I go down to the public library, it's interesting that all the banners are welcome the new Mexican population to Watauga County, and you look at the book bins where they're selling off all the inventory for pennies, and it's you know actual books, and they're replacing it with all of this Marxist you know revisionist history or you know made up history, mm-hmm. and you know it's just so frustrating that they're allowed to do this, and of course firing all the people that you know actually care about traditional Appalachian history, Southern history, and replacing them with commie carpetbaggers from, you know, somewhere else. And that's the whole thing is we need multiculturalism. We need diversity here because all the old ways were wrong because they're Southern. And so, you know, you can think, yeah, and yet another thing to thank, you know, uh, Governor Roy Cooper for because he has completely destroyed the public library system here. And I would be interested to see if you would even be able to get your books into this Appalachian Regional Library anymore or if they would be deemed hateful, no matter how factual they may be. I don't know. I mean, I they're carried in our local libraries. Uh, at our local public library downtown, we have a, a big section called the South Carolina Room, and that is a local history uh, collection. You can't check the books out. You have to use them on site. And they have a lot of the older books and uh, a lot of books on genealogy and things like that and South Carolina history dating back, you know, uh, to – to older historians. And I don't know if your library has something like that, but that might be something people could ask for, you know, a local history room, at least, or section of the library to put uh, local works and books about Appalachia written by people, local people, or and stop selling off all these things that they're purging. I mean, I think that's awful to purge old books. It's, you know, it's, but I know they have their agenda. So that's, that's one of the things they're going to do. Well, beyond a shadow of a doubt, one of the things I know, uh, Karen, is that my wife, Susanna, was in the field of education for 30 years. And I remember when she was teaching in Colorado, is that the librarian came into them and said, um, and this has been 
probably 2015, 2016. And the librarian came in and asked the teachers, look, uh, we have to get rid of any book in our library that was written prior to 1960. And so they're going to be offered for sale, and they're going to be like a nickel or a dime to buy those books. And I remember, you know, uh, my wife used to say when we first got married that when we got paid, we went to the bookstore, and if there was any money left over, we bought food. So uh, (laughs) there – but she brought numbers and numbers of these books home, and – you know, it's uh, when you look at history books, things written by Merrill and John Francis, I mean, uh, John uh, Taylor Maine, I think was his name, uh, who was also a disciple of uh, these uh, original people who were trying to keep the truth out there. Mm-hmm. And so there is a purging going on. I think it started, you know, uh, Frederick, uh, it happened uh, un- after 9 11 for you. Uh, but that also, I think, uh, was a continuation in 2005, 2006 when this started happening to the schools in Colorado. So, right. you know, you're seeing it everywhere, and it's the same, you know, argument. We need space for new books, you know, and oh, those old books, there, you know, nobody checks them out, nobody reads them, and we'll just sell them for pennies and nickels and stuff like that. And for me, it was nice because I was able to buy a lot of really nice books from my personal library, but at the same time, it's like I would much rather these books remain in the public library, and then you see the degenerate trash, excuse me, uh, that they're replacing that shelf space with you know and just bringing in all the various cultural marxist agendas especially the lgbtq trans agenda for the you know youth section i mean the youth sections in these public libraries now are just you know it's total degeneracy and it's everything you know the antithesis of what southern culture is and that's by design um and yeah, so just it's just that's one of the things I see is so maddening is you know, weaponizing the public libraries. Uh, just another thing that's been weaponized against us. So back to you. Oh, big time. Uh, there was one thing that I would like to bring up, Karen, if I may. And I believe that General Sherman actually did from time to time write the truth of what he intended to do. And uh, one of those I will quote from uh, one of his uh, orders, and that is, uh, you know, just a part of it. But it says, Mm -hmm. the government of the United States has in North Alabama any and all rights which they choose to enforce in war. We can take their lives, their homes, their lands. We can take their everything, unquote. Mm -hmm. I've read that, yeah. So he was, at times, you know, when we go through the OR, as you and I have both done, and we look at these official records, there were times that Sherman, being the pathological sociopath or psychopath that he was, there were times he would condemn what they were doing themselves. And then two days later, he would burn a town like Meridian, Mississippi, when there were no Confederate forces there. So... uh, but the one, the one big one, you know, I think that always uh, hits me the hardest 
is the uh, what is uh, affectionately known. <laughs> I use that facetiously, but the rape of Athens, Alabama, mm. and this was done by a Russian Turkin. Turkin mm-hmm. and uh, who was what was his uh, original name? Turkayevich Turke- or something like that. I'm not sure how you pronounce that Russian. Yeah, yeah me either. It, but looks, his, like, it looks like Turchin. But yeah, I think but his first, his, yeah, his first name was Vladimir, and you know whatever. But uh, he changed his name. He takes his troops into North Alabama. They commit all kind of atrocities, rapes, everything else. And I give General Rosecrans credit because he took him to court martial. Right, he tried to. Mm-hmm. And he and the court martial last lasted what almost a month, if I'm not mistaken. And then he's convicted and he's kicked out of the army. And a few days later, Lincoln not only puts him back in the army, right. but promotes him to brigadier general. Yeah, that, that's I mean, what gets you promoted. <laughs> yeah. So what what was the message to the other Union commanders? Mm. Crime pays. <laughs> yeah, crime pays, and it pays real well. Uh, I don't know uh, if you and I have ever talked about that, uh, Blackbird, but are you familiar with the rape of Athens? You have talked about it before, and you know, I've always wanted to follow up on it, do a deep dive, but I never have because I just really want to know his origin. Was he Russian or Russian? You know what I mean? <laughs> Russian echo, 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 right? Well, he had served in the Russian army, and he yeah. was a Cossack. Yeah. He was probably one of the 49ers that came over. Yes, ma'am. Without a doubt. Uh, a lot of, not a lot, but there was a good many Union officers and generals who were refugees from Europe uh, because they had participated in nationalist revolutions and also, you know, socialist revolutions. So um, I'm, he was probably one of those. Uh, well, ma'am, those, uh, I, did, I did a Substack, uh, a, a podcast on Substack in which I went through a list of all of the 48ers who had Lincoln had put into high officer ranks, and then I dropped down and went into all of the 48ers that he had put into, uh, you know, like lieutenant colonel, major, uh, colonel, other positions throughout the Army. And there were even, and this is something I think uh, that parallels today, is the fact that uh, my latest, and correct me if you have uh, better information, but what I have found out is that something over 530,000 immigrants fought for the Union Army. Well, the statistic that I saw was that about 25% of the Union Army were immigrants, and most of those were from Germany or Ireland. Um, they went over and recruited these men, you know, offering them, uh, you know, money and, oh, it's going to be a great time. <laughs> yes. Come, well, come to the United States and fight. Well, one of the things, like uh, one of the uh, Marxists that he put into office was Blinker. And uh, I remember in northern Virginia, some of the uh, official documents that I read when I was there, the uh, Confederates uh, riding home would talk about the fact that they had been blinkered uh, by forces that couldn't even speak English. So yeah. there were there were actually quite a few large units that didn't even speak the English language. Yeah, that's I, I read that in letters quite a bit. Uh, the soldiers, you know, saying that these these guys don't even speak English. Uh, yeah. the, 
August Conrad that I mentioned earlier, he was from Germany. Well, he was from uh, Hanover, which was a German state. Yes, ma'am. And um, he, uh, when he was in Columbia and they were burning the place, he went to, he was trying to take refuge at the friend, a friend's house, but that was also on fire. And uh, he went up, he went inside and he caught a soldier trying to set fire to the bed of an elderly sick woman while she was still in the bed. And um, oh my! And so he he you know grabbed the guy and uh, pulled him off and you know uh, prevented her murder. But he said that that uh, he was really uh, mortified to find out that this gentleman gentleman I shouldn't say that that this soldier was. A German who could barely speak English. So, you know, those were in Sherman's army, too. And uh, I remember reading one historian who said that uh, to that uh, they emptied a, a lot of the northern prisons to uh, yes. populate Sherman's army also. So. Oh, very much so. I, I think that is true. And when it comes to the Irish, and I'm Scots-Irish, uh, you know, those stubborn folks, uh, that uh, the thing that I remember reading from quite a few was when the ships would arrive in the northern harbors during this time and there were immigrants coming here from Ireland, that the uh, once the men got off, if they were military age, they were immediately, can we say, drafted into the Union Army. They had no choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were given bounties, you know, and that yes. was at least an incentive, you know, to... to yeah, uh, I, I read uh, some of them got really sharp with that. Uh, they would uh, get a bonus for joining the army, and then they would desert and go to right. another area and join again so they could get more money. Yeah, yeah they called them <laughs> bounty jumpers. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, very good. Uh, Blackbird, since we're going to be losing you here in a few minutes, uh, do you have uh, questions for Miss Karen? Yes, I do. Okay, I'm going to be leaving, but I have to know your opinion on this individual that I never heard about, so even though I took all those you know, grade school classes and high school classes and college and university classes, I never, ever heard any mention of this guy at all until I started hanging out with people like the Rebel Madman. And I would love to hear what you have to say about Judah P. Benjamin. Hmm. Well, he was a... A Jewish gentleman, uh, a lawyer, and uh, Jefferson Davis made him the Secretary of State of the Confederate States of America. And uh, he, uh, I don't think that there were any Jews in high office or holding any high positions as officers in the United States or the United States Army. But uh, Judah P. Benjamin was just a brilliant man. and uh, after the war, he uh, he left America, and he went to England, and he practiced law there. And um, he was uh, just a brilliant uh, attorney. And uh, I think later on, he he had something to do with Canadian law also. And um, I have heard. Um, don't quote me on this, but I have heard that he uh, that they followed his thinking about uh, secession when they wrote the Canadian Constitution or laws 
and that that it was not it was just something that was specifically not uh, illegal or um, you know not allowed there. Um, well, Kara, uh, are you are you familiar with the fact that Stonewall Jackson didn't like Judah P. Benjamin at all, and he threatened to resign? No, I'm not. No. That I'll send you that information. I was just uh, doing some uh, research years ago, and uh, I took a week off from work, and I wanted to travel the entirety of the Shenandoah Valley, and I wanted to go to every battlefield uh, that where Stonewall was involved in 1862. And in one of those, I think it was in Front Royal, where I found in the Historical Society – that Stonewall had requested arms because most of the people from Virginia who was joining the Confederate Army didn't have proper military arms. They either had shotguns or, you know, other weapons. And he sent a requisition for arms to the Confederate command in Richmond for an additional arms. And uh, do you know what Judah P. Benjamin sent him? No. Pikes. Wooden pikes. (laughs) And (laughs) and Stonewall Stonewall wrote a letter back, and he referred to Judah P. Benjamin as Jefferson Davis's pet Jew. Mm. And he said if he remains, at that time he was Secretary of War. Then he was moved to Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. But Jefferson, he told Jefferson Davis, if you keep him in as Secretary of War, I resign. And so according to these papers that I found, uh, it was either Port Royal, Front Royal, or Winchester. I'm not sure exactly where I found them, but I still have them. But uh, uh, Davis was very upset that uh, Jackson might leave, so he sent a congressman from Virginia to go talk him out of it. And it was at that time that he made the promise that he would remove Judah P. Benjamin from the uh, office of Secretary of War and move him to the Secretary of State, and also there was a memorandum there that Stonewall, after the Battle of First Manassas, wanted to pursue the Union Army right into Washington, D.C., and sue for peace, (laughs) and sue for peace, and according to this article, it was Judah P. Benjamin who stopped him. So, yeah, that was an unfortunate uh, decision. Yes, because I think had he followed him in, uh, well, let me ask you, uh, what do you think would have happened if uh, Stonewall's army would have followed the Union Army right into Washington, D.C. and sued for peace? Well, it might have ended the war right there. Uh, it's it's a possibility. You never know. But, it, you know, they had their chance, and Davis was intent on fighting a defensive war. That's what I understand. Yes. And, uh, so he didn't he – didn't, go along with that but i think jackson was right and there were others who felt that way too stonewall oh i'm sorry ma'am i'm sorry uh stonewall actually i've uh, got some of the letters that he wrote to his wife and he was saying early in the war that he he talked to both uh jefferson davis and to robert e lee and he said gentlemen uh, the south cannot win a war of attrition we do not have the men. We do not have the in industry. We can't do that. So if we are to prevail in our quest, then we have to invade the North. We have to go up through Maryland and shut mm-hmm. Washington off from the rest of the Union. 
Well, I think he was right. Yeah, he was, I, he was our greatest general. Oh, I think so, followed closely by Nathan Bedford Forrest, I think. Uh, I've often wondered what would the outcome have been if Nathan Bedford Forrest would have been in command instead of Braxton Bragg. Because I, if only we, if only we knew, it's a, it's a wonderful time to play what ifs. But uh, uh, Blackbird, you're about to leave us, so finish us up here for this uh, second hour, please, sir. Oh, we should get together and play like parallel universe. What happened if this had happened? You know, what would it be like now? But I have thoroughly enjoyed this. It has been a uh, total pleasure for me, Miss Karen. I hate I have to leave here, but I. Definitely look forward to uh, reading your work and uh, hope to uh, see you again soon. And uh, Rebel Madman, you have a good rest of the show, and I will catch you all at the rendezvous. Uh, Thank you, buddy. Hey, you take care. And uh, this has just been so much fun. And, you know, I would love to do one of those parallel universes, but we would have to lead off with Hank Williams Jr. and – if the South would have won, we'd have had it made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we'd have to have that music, wouldn't we, Miss Karen? I've heard that song, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we would uh, most definitely have to. Uh, that is for sure. And, uh, of course, the Blackbird has left us, and now I've got to get busy and bring in our buddies, uh, Cal and DW, uh, once we hit that break. And, uh I think you're going to enjoy both of these gentlemen, Miss Karen. I know they have probably have a bucket full of questions for you. Well, I, I hate to uh, change my mind, but my voice is starting to go. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I just. I'm not well, sure if you. If you. Another hour for you. Okay. Well, if you're not comfortable, that would be fine. But I, we certainly appreciate everything you've done. Thank uh-huh. you, ma'am. Thank you. media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. 
Because you can handle the truth. Truth, truth, truth.